We've been in this series for a while. We've been looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. You know, when we're looking at this verse, we're looking at saying, Okay, God, what is this? And so when you are a new thing, you have a new identity. You have a new destiny. You have a new everything about you is new. You are now created into the image of Christ, and therefore your actions should begin to reflect that change that is in your heart. And then we get to Romans chapter 8, verse 6. It says, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Do you realize that who Paul wrote that to was a bunch of Christians? Like, do you get that? This isn't written to non-Christians, people who have not had that transformation. This is written to born-again believers, the church in Rome. And these people are obviously having some issues going on, dealing with this carnal mind versus spiritual mind thing, or he wouldn't have written it. We don't think of it in those terms, but because we think of it as we, we over-spiritualize some of this stuff at times, forgetting the fact that this was written by somebody to somebody. But apparently something was going on, and he's reminding them, if you're going to be like this, this is death. You want to be alive, here's what you do. Carnal mind, spiritual mind. How we think matters. Do you guys realize that when you take a principled stand on anything, you're taking it based on a belief system? Do you realize that principled stands are only adequate if what you believe is true? You can take a principled stand on anything, but it doesn't make it reality. It's based off of something greater than yourself. And so when we live in this world of the carnal mind, and the church today lives there, we think carnal, what do we think? We think sin, we think, you know, sexual stuff and, and all of this other stuff, but that's not what it's talking about. Do we have the mind of Christ? Do we think like God thinks? Do we respond in a way that God would respond? What would Jesus do? It's a fair question. What would he do? How would he respond? And we've accepted this nuance where Christianity is all rainbows and puppies and all of this other stuff. Or Christianity is, it's anything that you want to believe. God made you this way. You just be you. Live your truth. How many times have you guys heard that? Live your truth. What if their truth is wrong? Live your truth. I can fly like Superman. Right. My truth will be short-lived. That's right. That's exactly right. Be very short-lived. I told you guys this story, but all as a kid, you guys remember Underoos? Are those still a thing? I don't even know if they're a thing. But you know, they had all the superheroes, and then my folks bought me pajamas, Superman pajamas. And the second I put them on, I was a new man. I was a Superman. And I literally was climbing to the highest things in the house because I was convinced, 100% convinced, when I jump, I will not fall. That was my truth. What was the truth? It hurt. But I was convinced. You see, that's the world we live in. Perception versus reality. The carnal mind lives in a world of feelings and perceptions. The spiritual mind lives in a world of truth. Everything grounded in truth. doesn't matter what you believe. If it's not true. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 says, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you, I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. 
The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now, here's an angle that we have not talked about. What did Paul say? He said the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, which implies what? We're in war. It's how we respond. Do we respond carnally or do we respond spiritually? Now think about this for a minute. Paul clearly states we are in a war. Now, imagine, if you will, if we were to take the way we look at this spiritually and apply it to real life. And let's use Desert Storm as an example. Because the way we apply this, spiritually speaking, is when we read this, we're like, yeah, we're in war, but no bad things ever happen. I don't have to do anything, right? Imagine if we had taken that spiritual idea and applied it to real life in a real battle, how would that work out for you? Oh, I'll just walk through the flying bullets. They're not real. Can't touch me. Wouldn't end well, right? I don't care how many capes you put on. You will not fly. It's going to hurt. But we do this spiritually. You see, we've done things to make us feel good. Have you guys ever been involved with deliverance ministries and seen some of this kind of stuff? I've been a part of some of these. And I've seen some different things. They're always unique, Okay. But deliverance ministry, in a nutshell, is where somebody is demonically oppressed, possessed, whatever the case may be, and immediately when you say those terms, where does your mind go? Something exorcist similar, flying vomit, head spinning, floating bodies. That's not normal. I said normal. I didn't say it doesn't happen. I said it's not normal, okay? And you get all of these ideas and imageries in your head, but what happens when we think about warfare, is that a spiritual battle that's taking place? When a deliverance ministry is taking place? Absolutely. It's a battle that's going on. But what is the truth of it? Does it matter how loud you speak? No, it doesn't, does it? Does it matter if you know the name of the demon? Not really. It doesn't make any difference. I mean, you're not trying to make friends. You're not making for plans for like, hey, what are you doing for lunch when we get done with this? Like, none of that stuff. There are all these things that have been adopted into that ministry, but it's like, are they necessary? Because what did Jesus do to the demoniac? Uh, Y'all can go now. You can just go. It wasn't, there was no hype. We, we brought that in. Why? Because we have an expectation of it. There's an expectation there, all this, but it's not necessary. doesn't mean things don't get squirrely. Don't misunderstand me. But when you walk in the confidence of knowing who you are and who God is, it changes things. I don't need hype. Let me give you a few other examples, talking about spiritual warfare. We'll drill in this later on down the road. But there have been things through the years that have happened in the church that has just confounded these ideas. During the 80s, you guys remember the ideas of warring tongues? Some of you have been around for a while. What was warring tongues? We had to go to the high places, which means that you would, they would sometimes rent airplanes or uh, skyscrapers, and they would go to the high places, the highest place that they could get, and there would be nights of just screaming in tongues. My response always, if biblically speaking, 
is how do you know what you're saying? Like when you speak in an unknown tongue, you speak to God, not to men. How do you know what you're saying necessarily? But the other thing is, do we have to be at the high place? No, not necessarily. You know what else they do? They'd wear fatigues. A lot of these guys, is that necessary? No. What we're doing is we're, we're thinking carnally and not walking spiritually. There's not inherently anything wrong with any of this stuff. Don't misunderstand. I'm not saying this is sinful or anything like that. This is stuff that we have added to it that we don't think as carnal thought. We think as just like, well, this is what we do. You see, we've looked at these questions, who is God, who am I in relationship to him, how do I worship him, and ultimately, who is my enemy, and, and as we're going through this list, we're like, okay, well, what do I do with this? Well, the number one thing that we have to know is, who am I going against? I showed you this image last week, but we, this is what we think of as spiritual warfare, and one of the instructors that introduced me to this idea, he told me, he's like, if we could get the church to understand what they're going against, it would revolutionize everything. These four principles I did not create. He did. This guy named Doug Jones. But I remember when he taught it, he said, I spend more time teaching these principles inside of churches that I go to because we think we've got it figured out when we don't have a clue. And what his point was is that we all think we know who God is, but the truth is... It's we have an image of God in our mind that we've made up because we don't look at God how he's revealed himself. And we think I know who I am in relationship to him, but if I don't even know who he truly is, how can I possibly answer that question? And then I think we know how we worship God because why? We've been to worship services and that's what everybody did. But why did they do that? How do we know how they did that? I will never forget this as long as I lived. Instructor named Marty Blackwell. In fact, he was just at a church over in Auburn not long ago. I went over there and visited with him a little bit. But he was a worship leader for Kenneth Hagin Ministries, traveled all over the world doing whatever they did. And a great piano player, super good guy, laid back as the day is long, really nice. And he was dealing with some of these excesses that were going on in the church back in the late 90s, dealing with the worship. And one of the things he made a whole point is, is like, just because you get up and bounce around and dance does not mean you are worshiping God. And he went into very specific things that were going on at this time. Eight weeks of this class, eight weeks, three days a week, eight weeks, Right? And on the last day of class, he said, now we're going to demonstrate what true biblical worship is. So he brings in the team, and they're up there, and they just start playing. I mean, you could immediately, you could feel the presence of God. I mean, immediately. Because he's demonstrating a biblical principle. And within minutes, there were two women off in the corner that started swing dancing together. Which was exactly what he spent eight weeks, three days a, a week teaching against this because this wasn't a spiritual thing they were they immediately went back to what they've always known he said that's the problem because how we worship god is dictated by god but this last part is who is my enemy you see we don't really know because we can get confrontational with one another but paul said that we're not battling against flesh and blood but where do we battle against flesh and blood we take things to a carnal level because that is our natural reaction to a spiritual battle and as you'll see and you'll begin to see this is there's always a spiritual side behind the powers now last week we spent the time answering this question what is his name why does that matter because we're starting to figure out who is my enemy 
one good place to know is, well, what do we even call him? Because what do we call him? We call him Lucifer and Satan. But as you see, that is not necessarily a proper name. You can call him whatever you want. It doesn't matter. And then we begin to look at what kind of power does this person have over me? And we're kicking over cows as we go. We're cow tipping. Because we've got all these bad ideas. Listen, um, old ideas aren't bad unless they're not grounded in truth. Traditions are wonderful. As long as the tradition has a reason for it. Not just because. And so the handwriting of requirements we talked about is that it was this legal sentence against us that Jesus took and nailed it to the cross. So let me ask you this. This enemy that we are dealing with, what power does he have over you? None that you don't give him. And that's the key. Because this is the same thing that Doug said back then. It's the same thing that's been said for decades. There are believers all around the world that are influenced by the power of the enemy and they don't even know it because they don't recognize it when he comes knocking. Because you know what he doesn't show up as? This great, big, red-horned, pointy-tail pitchfork dude. I've got some pictures here. This is what we think of when we think of the enemy. Aren't those nice? Do you ever ask yourself, where did we get this? Where did this come? Why do we believe this? Is this what Scripture describes? But we've all been there. At one point or another, I promise you, we've all seen this. I remember being in a grade school, like a, a children's church thing. I don't remember what we are doing. I hope it wasn't pin the tail on the devil, but I really think that's what it was. But it was this red horn dude, and we had the tail. I think that's right. That's weird just dawning on me now karma doesn't do that so we're good okay but let me tell you a story okay now I grew up for the better part of my life going to church okay my parents were not born again believers and I'll tell you how I even ended up in the church is my parents were not born again believers they were very carnal when I was young and uh, we kind of attended church and we went to this Baptist church at one point and it was a very traditional Baptist church and I don't remember much about it. I remember laying under the pews picking off gum during the service. That's what I remember primarily. But my mom had this older friend, her name was Nancy, and she just became like a mom to my mom and was always talking and kept inviting her to church. You know, and they would talk about God and the Bible and my mom was not an unbeliever, she was just unredeemed, there's a difference there. She believed in God, and if you'd ask her if she was going to heaven, she'd have told you yes, because she attended church once in a while. And so she, Nancy just stayed on her and stayed on her, and finally, my mom says, okay, fine, we'll go to this church, which was the church that I grew up in. Both my parents gave their life to Christ, completely transformed my family tree because of this woman. She later was killed by a drunk driver in a car wreck, but my, I mean, I'm telling you, you guys would not be seeing me here today, and some of you might clap for that, if it was not for Nancy. I mean, that's just the reality of it, because the trajectory my family was going on was extremely carnal. But here's where I'm going. So growing up in the church, I grew up being taught in children's church things I learned and stuff like that. And from a very young age, there were things that would happen to me spiritually that I had no explanation for at the time. Had no way of dealing with it because I had no basis for anything. But I will never forget this because there were times that, spiritually speaking, the enemy would attack me that I recognize now but at the time had no idea. And one night I had this dream. And the house I grew up in was a two-story house. And um, the way you got upstairs is you had about three stairs and then it would L and it would go, I don't know, 15 stairs, whatever it was. And then it would L again and you'd have about five or six stairs. 
and up the top, it was a big old two-story house, front porch, you, you've seen them. You could turn right, which would take you down to all the bedrooms and the bathroom. You could turn left, which would take you around to the attic, which was scary, and you didn't go over there. But immediately at the top of the stairs was my bedroom door. And in this dream, I'm chasing my brother up the stairs. Now, let me tell you how I know this was a dream and not real life. Because I did not chase my brother anywhere. We didn't run. Okay? Some of you guys can relate. And I'm chasing him up these stairs. And as soon as he hit the top, he turned right to run down the hallway, as did I. And immediately as I turned right, something grabbed my foot and drugged me under the bed. And what do you think I saw? I saw something that looked like this, probably more so that. Red horns, all of that, under my bed. You know what he said to me? Why do you believe in God? And I immediately woke up. Now, I don't know how old I was. I was young, eight, nine, maybe ten. I don't remember. Young. I can tell you what my immediate response was, and it was carnal. How do I get off this bed and into my parents without touching the floor? That's what I remember. I, I may have set a record long jump from the end of my bed through the doorway and into the hallway because there was no way I was stepping on that floor where that red thing was at. It was weird. Now, I say all of that to tell you this. Why would an eight-year-old have that dream? I'm saying eight. I don't know how old it was. Why would I have that dream? That's very specific, don't you think? My imagery of understanding of what Satan looked like growing up was that right there. But we have no idea why we even think that, do we? Well, if you trace back the origins of some of this, a lot of this comes from movies. It's been changed through the years. But let me show you this image. This is really the origins of this. You know who that is? That's Pan. And he was a god. And if you study this out, you can trace him all the way back to the Tower of Babel. Okay? I'm not going to go into all of that today. But you can trace this all the way back. And you begin to see. It's kind of like, you know how you've got the uh, five upside-down star? That's demonic. The pen, uh, What do they call it? The, what is it? Pentagram. Thank you. And it's the goat head that goes in there. This is, this is the basis of that. Most people don't realize that, but this is really the foundation where this came from. And Pan was a very viable god, and we've talked about some of this other stuff. But this is where that kind of roots from. But the question comes back to, what does he actually look like? See, we have to define our terms, and we have to understand something. So let's jump over to Ezekiel chapter 28. Because now you're going to see a little bit, we'll get into this deeper, of the spiritual side and the carnal side crossing paths. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 11. It says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. Who is the king of Tyre? Was he carnal? Was he spiritual? Just reading this part, your natural response would be carnal. If we don't catch any other context at all. Now, this is Ezekiel talking, so we know this is later this is during or past the time where they've been in bondage and all this stuff. This is way down the road, okay? But you would think, Carl, why? Because we don't have spiritual beings that are kings, right? It's, you know, the queen of England is an actual person, okay? Fair enough. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, you are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Now, how many years passed the time that man was in Eden 
are we talking? Could we say, conservatively, 2,000? I know they lived a long time back then, but not at this point. So now, what are we dealing with here? This is spiritual. This is something else. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, topaz, diamond, barrel, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald uh, with gold. The workman of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day that you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I establish you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created till iniquity was founded in you. Do you realize that we just read the answer there? You were the anointed cherub. We're dealing with something spiritual here, not something of flesh and blood. In fact, if you read prior to this, he deals with the prince of Tyre. Now, this tells us a couple of things. Number one, that who was the king of Tyre? It wasn't the man sitting on the throne. It was the power behind him. That should open our eyes a little bit to something that's going on that we'll address at a later time. But you were the anointed cherub. What does that mean? That doesn't mean much to us. Almost nothing. But a cherub is an angel. Now, we know he was an angel because it says so in other places. But what was an angel? There are two words that mean angel. The first one is malek or malak, is one who is dispatched with a message. It's used 196 times throughout Scripture, and 111 of those, it literally means angel. Sometimes it means messenger. Other times it means ambassador. It is a representative of, of God. The other one is agalos, which means a messenger it's an envoy, or one who was sent. It's a messenger from God. 179 times, it literally is translated as angels. So if he is the anointed cherub, we know that a cherub is an angel, and we'll get into that later, then we need to say, well, what does an angel look like, and what do they do? Because apparently, he doesn't have horns or red skin, or whatever that would be. We don't even know where the pitchfork comes from. So what do angels do? They have a ministry. That they serve those who will inherit salvation, according to Hebrews 11. They give personal guidance, they protect from harm, they deliver from enemies. These are all things that we can see through Scripture. We see angels encouraging, we see angels strengthening. We're not going to spend a lot of time in this, but you see all of these things, down to the fact they even provided food for Elijah. So when you hear stories, I had a lady at the last church that I was at uh, came up to me, she was telling me these stories, and she was um, very spiritual, a little wacky. Um, but just, she's just an odd duck. But she would tell these stories. She was telling me about this one time she got stuck in a snowstorm. And her car was stuck. Like she couldn't get out. And she's an older gal, like in her 80s. And she's just praying. And she said four men came up and knocked on her window and said, hey, we saw you were stuck here. Do you mind if we, you know, we can probably help you get you pushed out. And she's like, oh, that'd be wonderful. And so they did. They helped her push out. And she got out of the car to thank them. And they were all gone. Now, what was that? Either really fast people does it mean it was an angel? No, they could be really fast people. But it's a possibility, isn't it? I mean, there's nothing unbiblical about the story, is my point. Just because somebody claims that doesn't mean every time it's an angel of God, but it could be. So these are some of the things, but we also see that they guide us, that they encourage us. You'll see that they deliver us, that they enlighten us, and they empower us, and they also protect us. You realize the guardian angel idea is biblical? Psalm 91 it says, he shall give his angels charge over you, keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. I mean, there is something to that idea. Now, how many do you get? I don't know. Are you trying them? 
I'm sure he's exhausted. Um, they're, they're probably like drawing straws and they're like, dare not, Mason. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing, is that these angels have responsibilities and jobs, but they also have descriptions. So you have your run-of-the-mill angels, and I hate to even say it that way, I, but I don't know how else to say it. But then you have what they would call super angels, and your cherubs and your seraphs. And you'll see it oftentimes spelled cherubim or seraphim. And in Hebrew, that I am ending simply pluralizes it. It's all it is. So it means more than one. And they would have four wings. And what do you see? You see that they guard the tree of the life. They're adorned at the mercy seat. I mean, there's all these different things. These are living creatures. And so we know what they do. It says in Genesis 3, they guarded the way to the tree of life. They guarded the ark in Solomon's temple. Uh, they engage in adoration of God in connection with the mercy seat in the tabernacle. They support the Lord's throne, and they form the charity of God. I mean, they see, you see all of these different things that they do. We're not even going to talk about that today. We're more concerned is what do they look like? Because whoever the king of Tyre was was called an anointed cherub. So if we're going to be accurate and we're going to be biblical, I suggest we go to the source and say, well, what do they look like? Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives of the river Shebar, that the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, which was the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Uzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Shebar, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. And then I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire, engulfing itself, and its brightness was all around it, and radiating out of its mist like the color of amber. Out of the midst of the fire also from it, within it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Each one had four faces. Each one had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. They sparkled like the color of burnished bronze. The hands of a man were under the wings on their four sides, and each of the four uh, had faces and wings. Their wings touched one another. Uh, the creatures did not turn when they went, but each one went straight forward. As for the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man. Each of the four had the face of a lion on the right. Each of the four had the face of an ox on the left. And each of the four had the face of an eagle. Thus were their faces. Their wings stretched upward. Two wings of each one touched one another, and two covered their bodies. And each one went straight forward, and they went wherever the spirit wanted to go. And, as, and, and they did not turn when they wanted. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches going back and forth uh, among the living creatures. The fire was bright, out of the fire went lightning, and the living creatures ran back and forth in appearance like a flash of lightning. Now as I looked at the living creatures, behold, a wheel was on the earth beside each living creature with its four faces. Now, can we just all agree that this is weird? Can we just settle on that? That if you woke up one morning... And you look down your hallway, and that thing was standing in front of you, your immediate reaction would be like, Not today, Satan. Okay? It's weird. Jump down to verse 22. It says, The likeness of the firmament above the heads of the living creature was like a color of an awesome crystal stretched out over their heads. And under the firmament, their wings spread out straight, one toward another. Each one had two which covered one side, and each one had two which covered the other side of the body. When they went, I heard the noise of their wings, like the noise of many waters, like the voice of the Almighty, a tumult, like the noise of an army. And when they stood still, they let their, down their wings. A voice came from above the firmament that was over their heads. Whenever they stood, they let down their wings. 
this is very descriptive. Now, why do you think Ezekiel's going to all this trouble, writing down exactly what he saw? He's describing this for us. Does the description matter? Certainly. It mattered enough to God to capture this inside of Scripture. So it matters. So we need to know it. We need to have an understanding of it. Now, let's go over to Ezekiel chapter 10. And I looked, and there in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubim, uh, there appeared something like a sapphire stone, having the appearance of the likeness of a throne. Then he spoke to the man clothed with linen and said, Go in among the wheels under the cherub, fill your hands with the coals of fire from among the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And he went in as I watched. Now the cherubim were standing at the south side of the temple, and the man went in. And the cloud filled the inner court, and then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and paused over the threshold of the temple, and the house was filled with the cloud, and and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard even in the outer court like the voice of Almighty God when he speaks. Then it happened when he commanded the man clothed in linen, saying, Take fire from among the wheels from among the cherubim. Then he went outside and stood, or went in and stood beside the wheels, and the cherub stretched out his hand from among the cherubim to the fire that was among the cherubim, and he took some of it and put it in the hands of the man clothed with linen, who took it out, or took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a man's hand under their wings. And when I looked, there were four wheels by the cherubim, one wheel by one cherub, and another wheel by another, each other cherub. The wheels appeared to have color of barrel stone. As for the appearance, all four looked alike. As it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. When, when they went, they went toward any of the four directions. They did not turn aside when they went, but followed the direction the head was facing. They did not turn aside when they went. And their whole body, with their back, their hands, their wings, and their wheels, that had... Uh, that the four had, were full of eyes all around. As for the wheels, they were called into my hearing, wheel. Each one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub. The second face, the face of a man. The third, the face of a lion. The fourth, the face of an eagle. And the cherubim were, were lifted up. This was the living creature I saw by the river Shabar. When the cherubim went and the wheels went beside them, and when the cherubim lifted their wings to mount up from the earth, the same wheels also did not turn from beside them. When the cherubim stood Still the wheel stood still, and when the one was lifted up, the other lifted itself up, for the spirit of the living creature was in them. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim, and the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels were beside them, and they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the Lord of, of the God of Israel was above them. This is the living creature I saw under the God of Israel by the river Shebar, and I knew they were cherubim. Each one had four faces. And each one four wings, and the likeness of the hands of a man was under their wings, and the likeness of their faces was the same as the faces which I had seen at the river Shebar, their appearance and their persons, they went straight forward. So whatever he's seeing here was the exact same thing that he had seen before. It's still weird. But here's the thing. When you think of a cherub, what do you think of? Well, I've got a picture for you trying to help you out. Isn't that adorable? That's exactly what we read. A little fat baby angel that forgot to get the diaper on. And sometimes he carries a bow and arrow and he makes couples fall in love. Isn't that sweet? How many of y'all, when you just, without reading this in Ezekiel, when you thought cherub, you thought something like this? Let's be honest. Yeah, I, I hear you. Where did we get this? I don't know, somebody needed to sell greeting cards or something. And this is way cuter than what I just described. Because what I just described looks a lot more like this. That thing is not something you're painting in the nursery. Right? Kid walks in, freaks out, won't calm down. No way. 
You don't have these little things on your, uh, in the crib floating around. Be like, hey, baby. No, we don't go there. And there's a reason. It's weird. And we don't like things that are weird. And I hate to break it to you, but your Bible is weird by our standards. And we should be weird by the world's standards. You guys get that? See, let me explain something to you. This stuff has crept into the church, and we don't even realize it. So much so that you will see paintings and posters and all of that. When I first came here, there was a light switch in in one of the old classrooms that had those things all over it. Now, what happened? Somebody brought in a light switch and threw the cover on, and that was that. They weren't trying to be unbiblical. Just what they bought. You don't go to Christian bookstores and find light switch covers that look like that. You guys get it? But this is what we've accepted. Now, here's the thing. These are artist renditions. We know that he was the anointed cherub. We'll talk more about that specifically later. But what we describe him as and what we see him as has to be something more to that figure. Right? Biblically speaking. When he fell to the earth, did his looks change? Maybe. It could be. See, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, it says, He strove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Now, let me ask you this question. Would you need cherubim to keep Adam and Eve out of the garden? No. Any old angel would do. You need the big freaky ones to do what? Keep the big freaky one that caused the problem. These are fierce creatures we're talking about. He was the head, one calls him the anointed cherub. We're not going to go into all of that, but this is the thing we have to keep in mind. That's freaky. And we think about demons and all this other stuff, and we'll break that down later. They can be freaky. What we forget is they were all created by God. See, this is where that walking in truth matters. Because if you were walking down your hall and you see this big devilish looking thing, what would your response be? The majority of people would tuck tail and run. They'd get freaked out. They'd cower. What should you do? You can go. You don't have to get loud. The authority rests inside of you. I've told this story before, but I love this story. It's just one of my favorite stories, and I like stories, and you can just get over it, okay? But Lester Summerall, he was in some foreign countries in a tent. He was a very spiritual person, dealt spiritual warfare all the time. And so he was dealing with demonic things constantly in fact there was a documentary made about one encounter in the philippines about the demon that was biting this girl and he got involved in that you can find it on youtube i will tell you the acting is atrocious i'm just giving you fair warning but you can find the story on youtube it's better to hear him just tell the story than to watch the acting okay anyway and he was sleeping in this tent and uh he was on a cot and he uh was sleep, sound asleep, middle of the night, and then the cot started to bounce and started to move away from the wall. And he immediately woke up, and he's like, are you kidding? He's like, you stupid devil, get out of here. And immediately stopped, and the thing left. And most of us would be content with that. Not less, he's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Get back here and move it back. And doop, 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 moved it back. Now, could he be making that up? Possibly. But if you knew anything about this man, you'd 100% believe it because that's exactly what he would do. You see, it's thinking differently. 
We've got to understand something. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I want you to flip over there. We've read this before, but I want you to catch this. We're going to start in verse 12. But what I do, this is Paul talking, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. So here you've got people that are intentionally lying, that are masquerading themselves as an apostle. But they're not. They're transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. What's he say verse 14? No wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing that if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Now, whose ministers are they? See, you've got to catch that. Just like he, that's what they were doing. See, it's all deceit. It's all deceitfulness. This happens on big scales. This happens on small scales. The big scales we're familiar with. The small scales, and this is what, what Doug Jones would talk about. He, he would always say, he's like, if I could get the church to recognize this. He said, the problem is the body of Christ is way too arrogant today. We think we've got it all figured out, but we don't even know. And we miss out on these little nuances. And they said, there are good Bible-believing, God-fearing people who love the Lord, who are under the influence of the enemy because they don't know what they're dealing with. But the big ones we're familiar with, let me show you one. Here's a picture of this. You guys might recognize this. You guys know what this is? Some of you do. Some of you don't. This is the angel Moroni who appeared before Joseph Smith in the 1800s. You see, he was born in Vermont, I think early 1800s, and as a 14-year-old boy, he was very confused because even at this point, there are a lot of disagreements between, well, what is the right thing, which denomination is right, all of that kind of stuff. And he turned to Scripture, and this is a good thing. He turned to Scripture, so what we should all do. He reads James 1. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given him. This is good. He asked God, God, which is right? Because he wants to be right. And immediately, Moroni appears to him. And he says, they're all wrong. They've all are corrupted. And I don't remember if he hands them these golden plates or if they were buried and he found them. I can't remember the exact details. But he said, the truth is found in here. The scripture has been corrupted by man. And so he goes and he translates these. And that's what we have as the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, and the Doctrines of Covenants. And these are the three primary books using the, and the Mormon, I'll say cult because that's what it is. But what happened? He was seeking God. He did not recognize the angel of light that appeared to him. Now, why is that? Think about that. Because most of us think we're at a position that if that happened to us, there's no way I would fall for that. That's not true. You see, just like any other verse, the enemy knows the scriptures, but just like that, if you lack wisdom, let him ask God. And as he's asking God, here comes this angel, and this angel's giving him things that are contrary to scripture. And he didn't recognize it. We call that discernment. We have to have discernment. See, this is what it all comes back down to and what it all ties to. 
Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, it says, Even if we, being the apostles, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. You see, if he had discernment, and this angel appears to him, and he said, all of that is wrong. Let me show you what is right. His mind should have gone to Galatians 1, been like, this is exactly what Paul was talking about. He didn't do that. And today, we have an entire faith system built upon this. I have a friend of mine that's doing mission work in Salt Lake City, and he tells me some interesting stories. But that's the thing. Those are the big ones, right? Most of us think we'd pass the test if that happened, and some of us would. Hopefully, all of us would. But what about the little things? You see, we don't recognize when the enemy shows up because we don't know what we're looking for. He doesn't show up with red horns and a pitchfork. Because if he did, you'd be like, the devil! Oh yeah, don't want nothing to do with you. Right? It's very cunning. Even the devil himself transforms himself into an angel of light. So no wonder his apostles do the same thing. Get it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that as we continue in here, that you're opening our eyes to the reality of the world around us, that we are truly in a spiritual battle. And that our weapons are not those of carnality or those of this world, but they are something greater, deeper, and even more powerful. And so, Lord, I thank you that it is not empowered by how we respond to it. It's empowered by the truth of who you are. And so, Lord, I thank you as we walk this out and we grow in this understanding that we, our eyes will be opened to the true world that's around us, the spiritual world that we've ignored for so long that we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and we know beyond a shadow of a doubt how you will respond. And so, Lord, we thank you that we are just walking in this area where we're growing. And, Lord, I thank you that you're opening doors of opportunities that we can share the gospel each and every day. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you Wednesday.